open for you this morning the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at from John chapter 10. We are not going to be discussing all 18 verses, so rest assured, we are only going to be looking at verse 16. Verse 16 is my text, but I asked him to uh, read that entire portion to kind of give us some of the context for the message this morning. And I will tell you right up front that the three main points uh, from uh, for my message this, this morning uh, are not original with me. Uh, I have taken the main points for the message from uh, John Piper's excellent book, Desiring God, um, and uh, the application, the illustration, the exposition is mine, but the uh, main points are Piper. So I wanted to say that in case some, somewhere down the road you are reading Desiring God and thought less of Dr. Piper as stealing Steve's outline. He did not. Actually, he stole it from Jesus, and, uh, and there's nothing original with preachers. I don't know if you knew that or not, but I'm just tipping you off. Um, so I, I wanted, did want to share that with you this morning. We're looking specifically at verse 16. But before we get in to our message today, let's once again ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father in heaven, as we come now to the preaching of your word, we pray that uh, you would open our hearts and minds, that the Spirit of God might anoint the words that are spoken and might open the eyes and the hearts of any unbelievers who might be here uh, to the truth of the gospel. And more specifically, Father, we, we pray that uh, you would uh, work too in the hearts and lives of believers who are here, that, um, that we might uh, once again uh, think anew and afresh of, of the task of seeing the gospel uh, go into all nations, that all peoples might hear and know and respond to the truth of God's word. Thank you, Father, for the time that we have together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin this morning reading a brief testimony from one of the field workers of the organization that we have joined together with. Uh, as uh, we mentioned last night, uh, the organization is, uh, ha has people working in almost every Muslim country in the world. And this is a testimony of one of the field workers, and oftentimes, by the way, uh, we speak in cryptic terms and don't give names and sometimes don't even give countries for uh, security reasons, and so if some of this sounds that way, there's a reason for that. But the title of this is An Ambassador and a Man of Peace. This wasn't the best timing for this meeting, but it had been, it had been weeks in, in the making, one day after the American ambassador had been killed in a Muslim country, Will, a frontiers worker, was scheduled to have tea with the area imam. The Muslim cleric instructs and mentors more than 200 local imams teaching within 50 miles of Will's city. He's also responsible for, the pure, for purity in Islamic doctrine at the nation's premier university. 
Muslims were outraged over an internet film defaming Islam and the imam was likely to shower disgust upon the American. But Will knew that allowing the opportunity to meet with such an influential community member to pass would be to dismiss the door God was opening. Within the first five minutes of their meeting, Imam Fatih let the blasts fly. Are you a Christian, he quizzed. And an American, he added, not waiting for a reply to the first question. After answering rapid-fire questioning over five minutes, Will finally had the opportunity to query the imam in return. Will's question of, what do you know about Christianity, only intensified the verbal volley. For the next four hours, a contentious discussion of ideas flowed with several pots of tea. At some point, one of the men ordered cookies to accompany the liquids and diverging opinions. As the shop drew quiet due to the dwindling number of patrons at the late hour, Will thought to himself that the entire exchange was a waste of time. Scriptural ping-pong, contrasting the ideas of the Bible and the Quran, wasn't going to change any minds that night. That thought must have some way been expressed in his face or his posture because the imam launched into a barrage far more caustic than any previous part of the conversation. It's all about oil, he claimed, whether it's you, George Bush, Israel, Iraq, or anything else to do with Americans in the region. You're looking to satisfy your greed. You're willing to do whatever is necessary, even trample Islam just for oil. A calm that can only be given by the Spirit came over Will as he answered, Imam, on the day when each of us leaves earth and meets God, the question for you and I will not be, what country did I serve? The important question will be, how am I forgiven of my sins? Will explained that as a follower of Christ, his citizenship is in heaven, and his life's purpose on earth is to serve as an ambassador for God. Will desires to help Muslims who would draw near to God to eagerly embrace the Savior from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, Philippians 3.20. The Spirit must have also visited the imam. His attitude softened immediately. We must pray that the truth is found, offered the cleric. Whether it be my religion or yours, that is, uh, that is cast aside. Finding the truth is most important. As he left the shop that late evening, Will gave thanks to the truth for the meeting with the man of peace, Luke 10, 6. And he, and he asked Jesus to use the Muslim imam to lead many from the city out of Islam and into the pursuit of truth. Oftentimes when we think of ministering, particularly in places where the Islamic religion is so dominant, we think how difficult that must be. And indeed it is. But we praise God that even in those difficult places, the Spirit of God is at work. I, I, we could take our whole time this morning just reading testimony after testimony of how God is working in the lives of Muslims in some of what we would consider the most difficult and darkest places on earth. Robin and I just recently read a book 
by a missionary who's worked for many years in a Muslim country. And uh, this, this author wrote of just miraculous working in the lives of many people uh, previous, previously had been entangled in the Muslim religion. But it often is a difficult place. They often are difficult places to serve. Have you ever wondered uh, what it is that motivates people to become missionaries? And in particular, what would motivate a person to go to some of these most difficult, not only difficult in the sense of ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ, but difficult in culture, difficult in the sense that oftentimes it's dangerous to their own health and well-being and that of, of their family. Uh, what is it that causes them to leave the comforts of their own familiar culture and home in order to live among people with different customs, different culture, different language, usually, often, always different values? And an even more important question uh, than that, have you ever considered for a moment the confidence that a missionary must have in order to continue to persevere sometimes for years, years, without seeing any or very little tangible fruit for their labor. Maybe even to bring it a little bit closer to where we live today. Uh, let me ask you this, what confidence, what confidence do you have? What confidence that do I have that the testimony we have to our unbelieving family members, to our unbelieving co-workers, to our unbelieving neighbors, what confidence that we had, do we have that our testimony, that our message, that our words that we share are going to have any impact at all whatsoever in the lives of those people. I don't think I have to convince you this morning that we have been left here for a purpose. Uh, we have been left here to see the kingdom of God advanced in this community and throughout the world, to see the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed so that people's lives are changed. That's the essence of the Great Commission. But what assurance do we have that Christianity ultimately will win the battle for the hearts and souls of, of those who are still outside the faith? In other words, what confidence do we have that our evangelizing, our missionary activity will produce disciples? Now we answer that question will, to a great degree, uh, reveal our theology our philosophy and our methodology in taking the gospel. What's our motivation for missions? What's our motivation for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ? In his excellent book, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper wrote this, The most crucial issue in missions is the centrality of God in the life of the church, where people are not stunned by the greatness of God how can they be sent with the ringing message, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. And then Piper closes with this very familiar statement. He says, missions is not first and ultimate, 
God is. In other words, he's saying there, the confidence of the missionary endeavor must begin with a right view of God. That's where it all begins. It's where it all begins. Our preaching has to begin with a right view of God. Our proclamation of the gospel, our motivation for taking the gospel must begin with a right view of God. If the confidence of the missionary endeavor is in the fact that I have a deep burden to reach this person or to reach this group with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that might sound noble, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have that deep burden. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have that love for those folks that we want to share the gospel with. But that cannot be our primary motivation. Why? Because there will be times when they're not so lovely. There will be times when I don't feel too loving. But a right view of God is the foundation for our evangelism, for our missionary activity. Uh, William Carey, the father who's known as the father of modern missionaries, of modern missions, in 1793, and when he set sail for, Eng uh, for India from England, he wrote this. After he had been in India a while, he said, When I left England, my hope of India's, India's conversion was very strong, but amongst so many obstacles, it would die unless upheld by God. And then he says, well, I have God and his word is true. Though the superstitions of the heathen were a thousand times stronger than they are and the example of the Europeans a thousand times worse, though I were deserted by all and persecuted by all, yet my faith fixed on the sure word would rise above all obstructions and overcome every trial. God's cause will triumph. Kerry was saying that, that God has to be the focus of our, of our confidence in the task of world evangelism. And I think in the, in the very words of the Lord Jesus here in our text this morning in John chapter 10, he outlined for us the, the confidence of the missionary endeavor. And specifically in verse 16, he answers the question, what confidence do we have that our evangelizing, our missionary activity will produce disciples? I have a simple premise for our message today, and it's this. Our confidence is not in ourselves, but rather it's in Christ. It's in Christ alone. And John 10, 16 gives us Three powerful, encouraging statements concerning that divine confidence. So what is the confidence we have in sharing the gospel with our neighbor? What is the confidence we have in investing our dollars to send uh, people around the world to share the gospel? What is the confidence that it's worth it? Number one, notice, look there at verse 16. Let me read it for you again because we're, we're referring to it. These are the words of Jesus. He says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. 
Confidence number one is found in this. The limits of Christ's saving grace are without boundary. What's Jesus say there? He says, essentially, he has sheep outside of this present pen. Now, let's consider the context in which the statement was made. Most Bible commentary, uh, commentators find it difficult to, incur, uh, to interpret the, the phrase there, not of this fold, in verse 16, other than as indicating uh, those who are not to be found within the confines of Judaism. In other words, Jesus' statement there, I have uh, other sheep that are not of this fold, uh, carries with it a worldwide scope for the gospel. Verse 16 actually refers back to the first five verses of the chapter, where, we won't take the time to read them again, but verses 1 through 5 uh, refers to the, referring to the sheep pen represents Judaism as a whole. And Jesus says he calls his own sheep out of that fold, verse 3, thereby constituting his own flock. And the sheep that remain in that pen are presumably the unbelieving Jews. So if Jesus has other sheep that are not of this sheep pen, the reference has to include Gentiles. It's a statement of the worldwide scope of the gospel. And while that's the specific interpretation of the context of the passage, there's a general principle that we dare not miss in Jesus' words. Quite simply, Christ's sheep have been purchased from every tribe, every language, every tongue, every people, every nation. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. That's the confidence of the missionary endeavor. Jesus has sheep that are not of this full. Jesus has sheep that don't look like you and me. Jesus has sheep that don't, don't speak English. Jesus has sheep that are not from Michigan. Is that a shock to you? No. Jesus has sheep that, that may at this point in time be holding to another doctrine, may be holding to another religion. Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. That's why we've got to continue to pray that God raises up workers from among us to take the gospel to every tribe and language and people and nation. And, and as I alluded to last night, it's, it's sometimes hard for us to grasp the fact that there are entire ethnicities, entire people groups, people with a particular way of life, a particular language, a particular culture that have not only are there no believers, not only is there no church, but oftentimes they have little or, or no access to the gospel because there's no one there to share the gospel with them. Yet Jesus says, I have sheep that are not of this fold. That is why we pray, Lord, send forth laborers into your harvest. 
the verses like John 10, 16, Revelation 5, 9, give us the assurance that God has his people in those places as well. And he's ordained for us to take the gospel to them. I find that encouraging. That he knows them by name. And he has allowed us the privilege of being part of that process of seeing them come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's a privilege. It's a privilege. That's how, that's how God encouraged the Apostle Paul. Did you know that? Did you know people like Paul got discouraged? It's hard for us to grasp that. I mean, we think of the Apostle Paul as someone up here, you know, and, and never gets down in the dumps. I don't think that was the case. He put his sandals on the same way you put yours on. He had his times of frustration. Keep your finger here in, in uh, John chapter 10 and flip over to the book of Acts. Let me, let me give you an example of this. In Acts chapter 18, the Apostle Paul is ministering in Corinth, wicked city, wicked, wicked city. All you have to do is read a little bit of the history of, of the city of Corinth, an idolatrous place and the temples to all of the various gods, and it's just a mess. And, and that's where uh, we find Paul in Acts chapter 18, uh, or where God is intending to send him. And in uh, Acts 18, uh, verses... Uh, 9 and 10, we see the Lord encouraging Paul. It says in verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. I wonder if Paul was a little discouraged at that time. I wonder if Paul was beginning to wonder, Lord, are we making any progress? Lord, we haven't really seen any results here. You know, people aren't beating our door down. It was in that moment possibly that God spoke to Paul in that vision, don't be afraid, keep on doing it. Why? Because there are many people, there are other sheep, not of this fold, that are here in Corinth. The good news is that God has a chosen people, the other sheep out there. Ephesians 1.4 tells us that he chose those people, those sheep, before the creation of the world. And that choosing was according to what? Their decision? Their own ideas? No. According to his own pleasure and his own will. The good shepherd knows his own. And will call them by name when we faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the fact is we never know where those wandering sheep are. You know the funny thing about birth? It can happen anywhere at any time, well, assuming the woman's pregnant, okay? You're following with me there. But babies don't wait necessarily to get to the hospital. I, I just heard a thing in the news recently about 
Guy rushing his wife to the hospital, maybe you heard the same thing, and uh, didn't make it. He pulled over on the side of the road and delivered his wife right there. The story, you know, they interviewed the guy and he was on the phone, 911, to the hospital and, and uh, they told him that he had to tie off the umbilical cord. Did you hear this story? Had to tie off the umbilical cord. He said, the only thing I had there was uh, the, uh, the cord that hooked my MP3 player into my, <laughs> into my car charger and he pulled that out. That's what he used to tie off. Babies don't wait. I mean, when it's time for birth, they're there. And in a very similar way, a delivery room for a spiritual birth can happen anywhere that God gives us opportunity to share the gospel. doesn't have to wait till you bring them to a church service on a Sunday morning. It can happen anywhere. It can happen on the job. It can happen on a fishing trip with a friend. It can happen anywhere. That's why we're to be instant in season and out of season, proclaiming the gospel to whoever might come our way. That's the first encouragement that we have as we consider the confidence of, of, the, of the missionary endeavor, that the limits of Christ's saving grace is without boundary. And when it comes to the kinds of people, all kinds of people, that God is calling to himself. American religious people, Hindus, Muslims from all over the world, God has his people and he's calling them out. He has his other sheep. And they will respond. That's the, the second um, encouragement. Not only does he have other sheep, but notice again there in, in verse 16, the shepherd himself, who's the shepherd? Christ. The shepherd is under a divine mandate to gather his own sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. Not, well, maybe if I think about it, or maybe, no. Christ said, as the good shepherd, I must bring them. Now, as soon as you start reading words like that, some may want to jump to some sort of hyper-Calvinistic idea that, uh, well, you know, it really doesn't mean, you know, that I have to do anything then. He's going to do it. He has a divine mandate. God's going to call whoever he will. But God has, in His divine providence, has ordained means to that end. And he, as we said, He's allowed us the opportunity to participate by sharing the good news. But ultimately, it's the good shepherd who does the work. God always uses means. We could take a lot of time this morning and we could show you a lot of different passages that illustrate that point, but that don't have time to do that this morning. Well, Pastor Fred, I'm sure, has done that on numerous occasions here. He uses means, but ultimately it's God himself, the, great, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, who must do that work. And while God always uses means, we must never forget that we are helpless. It's the shepherd himself who calls and saves and works in us what's pleasing to him. I mentioned William Carey a few moments ago. Um, William Carey was born in 1761. Um, 
as I mentioned, he's considered the father of modern missions. You know what William Carey's occupation was? He was a shoemaker. I mean, a common, ordinary worker. That was, that was what he did for a living, a shoemaker. But he was a shoemaker whom God chose to use mightily in India over a 40-year period. Just to give you an idea of some of the accomplishments that he had while in India. Uh, he translated the entire Bible, the entire Bible into six different languages and parts of it into 29 other different languages. Not some learned theologian, a shoemaker, <laughs> a cobbler. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that he would use the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. I think in part that stems from the fact that the proclamation of the gospel is not about us. It's about Christ saying, I must bring them also. What's the scripture say? That if we don't, if we don't speak out, he'll use the rocks to cry out his glory. What he desires of us is submission to his, to his will and a determination to persevere no matter what. Excellent book if you, if you want to get a start in understanding missions, the history of missions, is uh, the book by Ruth Tucker called From Jerusalem to Erie and Jaya. In, in that great book, uh, she makes this statement about William Carey. She said, although he faced many oppressive trials during his 40-year missionary career, he demonstrated a dogged determination to succeed and he never gave up. His secret, and here she quotes Carey, he said, I can plod. I can persevere in any definite pursuit. To this I owe everything. And then she, she adds, Carey's life profoundly illustrates the limitless potential of a very ordinary individual. He was a man who apart from his unqualified commitment to God, no doubt would have lived a very mediocre existence. I like what Carrie said. I can plod. I can identify with that. Can you? <laughs> Are you a plodder? How is he able to say that? because he had a right view of God. He was one who persevered. And in spite of his great accomplishments, William Carey never forgot that the fruit of his labors were not about himself, but they were about Christ. And when he died, this is what was written on his simple tombstone at his own request. This is what it says. William Carey, born August 17, 1761, Died June 1843, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. The great encouragement from John 10, 16 is that the Lord himself will do what is impossible 
for poor, helpless worms like William Carey and like you and like me. That's encouraging, especially when we feel like we've blown it, especially when it feels like, oh, if I would only said this to him, if I'd only presented the gospel in this way. It's not about technique. That doesn't mean that we don't try to hone our skills in sharing the gospel. But ultimately, ultimately, it's about the shepherd who must bring those other sheep. And what he asks of us is just a willingness to be used in his hand. I find encouragement in that. If I didn't believe these things, if I didn't have these truths, I think, I, no, I, I know I would give up. Why go on? But he has other sheep that are not of this fold. He will do the work. But notice a third divine encouragement found in verse 16, and it's this. The sheep themselves are under a divine compulsion to respond to the shepherd. What's it say there? What's Jesus say? I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. The sheep themselves are under a divine compulsion to respond to the shepherd. What an encouragement. What an encouragement to that one who goes forth to sow the seed. What an encouragement to the missionary who moves to a strange land to proclaim the gospel among people that are very different than him. They will hear the shepherd's voice. His sheep will respond. And, that, and, and the clear implication is that from, from verse 16 is not only will they hear, but they'll hear with appreciation. And they respond. Everyone who hears? No. His sheep, those whom he's chosen before the foundation of the world, will respond. And throughout this discourse here in John chapter 10 by our Lord, there is an emphasis on the voice of the shepherd. Look, look back again at verses 3, 4, and 5. It says, To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know what? His voice. Verse 5, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know what? The voice of strangers. Are you encouraged by that? God's people, the, the people who God has chosen for himself, will hear the voice of the shepherd and will respond. When we lived in in, uh, in Mexico, a uh, lot, lot of sheep down there. And uh, one of our friends had a young man who was the shepherd of his flock. And I occasionally would go out with David and, uh, and be with him when he was in the field with his sheep. And he, all he would have to do is holler and those sheep would you know, begin to come. I could go out there and I could holler my lungs out. And they just blindly wander away, munching on their 
cactus or whatever it is they're munching on. But when David whistles or when David calls, they respond. That's the picture of our Savior here in John chapter 10. They too will listen to my voice as both a prophecy and a promise combined. It was a prophecy that the elect among the heathen, however unlikely it might appear, would hear Christ's voice speaking to them in the gospel preached and hearing and would believe and would obey. And it was a promise that would encourage his disciples to preach to all those that they came in contact with because they'll listen and they'll be converted and they'll follow Christ, some among those to whom we speak. What's impossible with men is possible with God. And for that reason, we persevere in praying for and sharing the gospel with those relatives, co-workers, or neighbors who may have spurned us in the past because we never know when God is going to allow this place to be a delivery room and us to be the one there with the MP3 cord. You know, it's like, I don't know what to do. Hey, you know what? Just like that guy who was delivering his wife's baby got on the phone, you know, called 911. We've got something better than 911. We have the Spirit of God living within us. That even though we may think, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to, I don't know what to say. The Spirit himself directs us, guides us, and uses us for his glory. Oh, if it's your passion uh, that, that God would, would so fill you with his grace that it overflows to all around you, then the best news in the entire world is that God will do the impossible through us. Plotters. Just common, ordinary folk to see the gospel taken to your community and throughout the world. You say, well, you know, I'm not going over there. One of the posters down here says, um, what is it? Go, send, or disobey. You see, we're all part of the missionary challenge. We're either goers, we're senders, or we're disobedient. What camp do you fall into this morning? We have confidence that what the time we invest in praying for those who go, the dollars we invest in giving for those to go, are useful and are purposeful in seeing the gospel taken to all nations. Be encouraged by the words of our Savior this morning. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have not sent us on a fool's errand. Thank you that you have not left us to our own abilities. Thank you that you have not left us without a guidebook. Thank you that you have not left us to figure this out on our own. 
but the Spirit of God indwells us. And the Word of God is our message, the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would use each one of us, your servants, in the proclamation of the gospel to a lost and dying world, from the youngest among us to the very oldest, to those with lots of uh, abilities, to those who've just been given one. But Lord, help us to use that one talent or that one ability you've given us for your glory here in this community and throughout the world. Thank you, Father, that you promise to use us and you promise to accomplish your work through plotters like us. In Jesus' name, amen.